0: Welcome to The Engineering Room, a monthly series of long-form conversations with influential people from the software world. The Engineering Room series is sponsored by Equal Experts, and I'd like to thank them for their ongoing support. So if you'd like some help building some great software or are interested in finding a great place to work, do check their links out in the description below. I first heard about the work of our guest today as a result of his bestselling book, Your Code as a Crime Scene. You have to admit that's a fantastic, t- intriguing title for a book. Um, he's a programmer with an interesting academic background, too, holding degrees in engineering and in psychology. He's a founder of CodeScene, where he designs tools for code analysis. He's also the author of multiple technical books and a speaker on the international conference circuit. Please welcome our guest for today, Adam Tornhill. Welcome, Adam.
1: Thank you very much, Dave. Great to be here.
0: I'm looking forward to our conversation. As I said, I, I was always intrigued by your the title initially of your book, Code as a Crime Scene, and then some of the ideas in it. Um, and I saw you recently... Uh, not very long ago, end of last year, actually, um, speaking at a conference where you were talking about some of this in more detail, which which kind of reminded me of 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 what an interesting topic this is. So, can you can you explain a little bit what you mean by treating your code like a crime scene?
1: Yeah, sure, i would be happy to do that. And I have to uh, start and travel a little bit back in time because. Um... You know, when when I started to work professionally as a programmer, I already had some programming experience. But I still kind of found that once I joined these larger companies, I found that software development at scale is a very, very different thing compared to what I had been doing before, right? Yeah. And in particular, I found it was really, really hard to reason about large code bases. So that's when I decided to kind of go into psychology. And my plan originally was just to do like an introductory course because um uh, I kind of thought that psychology should have a lot to offer to us as engineers, because psychology is very much about we think, reason, and solve problems. Uh, and it turns out that psychology is really, really fun. So I, I planned to spend one year there, but I actually spent six years at the university and eventually took my master's degree, right? And at the same time, I was kind of fortunate to work as a software developer. So that gave me so many opportunities to take what I learned in psychology and kind of you know, apply it to my day job. And Codes or Crime Scene kind of came from that intersection. So at that point in time, I did some work for a, a company. And they were really, really struggling with the software delivery. They were really, really slow. And uh, there was a huge pressure of delivering stuff quicker. And somehow it turned out to be like my responsibility because I was hired as um, the technical leader on that project. And I found it really hard to do. So I tried a bunch of these traditional approaches, like uh, static analysis tools, tried to identify the worst bottleneck, looked at the value streams and that kind of stuff. But I kind of found that it was so hard to communicate around something as deeply technical as code. So, at the same time, I was in the middle of my psychology studies and I took this course in forensic psychology and learned about something really, really fascinating called geographical offender profiling. So I'm not sure. Have you heard about that, Dave?
0: Before I have. I watched, I watched a documentary about it a few years ago. It's a, it's an interesting topic. So so yes. so the, the the thing that I was seeing, if we, if we if I'm talking if I'm remembering this correctly and talking about the same thing, these people were were using geographic profiling of crimes in order to be able to predict where crimes might occur.
1: Yeah, exactly. So they um. What you do is basically that you consider each uh, each crime scene its geographical location as a center of gravity because you know whatever has to be an overlap in time and space between an offender and a victim right so yeah. the crime scenes carry information and then you simply weight them together mathematically and project that on a map and now you get what offender profiles call a hotspot right and that's the area with the largest probability that the offender will have their home base there and w- when i learned about this stuff i was just like Wow, what if we could do the same thing for software right what if I could pick up this large code bases I'm struggling with and kind of you know get the probability surface on, on them and know that if I focus our efforts to the hotspots then we're where we're likely to get the real business benefit you know being able yeah. to ship quick better quality so that's where it kind of started and and
0: and, and i I've, I've, I've seen you talk about this recently yeah. and now you talk about those Hotspots as red code uh, and, you know, areas that are interesting to focus more attention on it, uh, and so on. Did, is, was that something that you came to immediately that idea of code health? Or was that something that you and, you know, been able to highlight it, you know, visually, or was that something that I don't know, you, you iterated over and came to, to more slowly, but it was, it was just the core idea of the geographical analysis that started off.
1: So, uh, Code Health actually came uh, much later. So, I started to do this work like maybe 12, 13 years ago with the hotspots. And I found it super useful. And I, you know, I put a lot of effort into how can we visualize these hotspots? How can we build maps over the software, right? where We see the hotspots. Yeah. The idea here was that we just use that to kind of uh, simplify our communication, right? And use the hotspots to help us focus our attention to where it's likely to be needed
0: the most cool so what's what's up sorry I interrupted yeah no sorry please go ahead I was I was just intrigued about so where did you start off in trying to differentiate if code health came later how did you where did you start with trying to identify the hotspot
1: so what I did with the hotspot was that I based uh, in the first iterations I based them purely on uh, behavioral data how we as developers interact with the code we're building and that turns out that state that we already have, right? We just yeah. not think of it that way. It's in our version control data, right? So the, yeah. the first version of this was purely language neutral. You could use it for any program language, as long as it was text-based and under version control, right? So that really, really helped because I found that, you know, no matter what system you look at, the development activity is very unevenly distributed. There's always a very small part of the code base, maybe just sure. one, 2% where most of the development activity is. So my thought was that if we focus on that part, then we can inspect that for code quality issues, technical debt, all that stuff, and be pretty certain that if we pay that down, then we're going to get a real benefit. So that was the first iteration of it. Then what I ran into later, a couple of years later, when I started to do, you know, before I built a product around this, I used to do services. So I went to clients and I helped them out with like mapping up their system, profiling them. And what I found was that I had to spend a lot of time explaining why a particular piece of code is a problem. And this was yeah. time consuming as well, right? I had to pick up the code, I had to review it. And I actually started thinking, think, isn't there a way to do this automatically? So that's what kind of code have grew out from. I basically started to formalize the things I used to do manually when reviewing code and see, can we write code analysis tools that detect these various code smells and kind of combine them together? and Yeah, me this
0: snapshot. So so, so that that sounds that sounds a bit like two different things to me. So 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 I I might be misunderstanding. So so the first part where you started sounded a little bit like traffic analysis. Is the the old code breakers used to? You know, they they couldn't break the code, but they could learn a lot just by analysing how communicate the the flow of communication. So you're kind of looking at the traffic analysis through analysing you know the the, the commit the commit the commit history essentially uh but then you're adding on the sorts of metrics for the health of the code as well is is, is that is that correct
1: yes that's correct so it's basically two different perspectives that uh, yeah. we need to combine if ever want to manage tech that and the reason I say this is because if you if you look at traditional static analysis I mean that's where I started right uh, the main problem with that is that it completely lacks context right yeah. so i might put it on an existing code base and i end up with like 5000 major findings and there's no clear priority between these findings right but you yeah. still need to can, need to have that quality perspective we need to separate the good from the bad code right but yeah. then we need another perspective the relevance perspective and this is what i think hotspots offer
0: so 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 the so so i'm just trying to tease out the the detail of the meaning of this for my own understanding so 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 what so the the, the traffic um, sorry the static code analysis approach you know gives you tells you this piece of code is a problem, but that doesn't mean that that's sensible piece of code to work on it might be working and nobody's touched it for years and it doesn't matter that it's a problem because it works
1: exactly. That's a very good summary. So uh, what I'm saying is basically that just because a piece of code lacks in quality, that doesn't mean it's an immediate problem, right? Yeah.
0: Some people not want to know about, but yeah. I, I remember reading some analysis years and years ago. I, I think somebody was trying out some code analysis tools against the, it might have been even have been the Unix code base rather than the Linux code base then, but but there was this one bit that didn't fit because they were they were they were looking they were, they were they were looking at this and they were they were doing something similar to what you're doing is not but not as sophisticated i think but there was this one bit that had huge cyclomatic complexity it was a really nasty piece of code but nobody ever touched it and that was because everybody was scared and it worked <laughs> so nobody touched it
1: <laughs> yeah i think that's uh that's a pretty common finding right but then yeah. you have the other type of uh, problematic code right the code might really objectively be a mess right but uh, maybe it's a stable mess that's been debugged into functionality a stable part of the domain i mean why spend time fixing that when it doesn't need to be fixed
0: yes so so the 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 second part of the of, of your approach kind of highlights the value of changing this bit that's problematic Yes, that's correct. Uh, and and that's when we get to the red code, right?
1: That's how we get to red code. So to um to kind of simplify the presentation a bit, because uh, what I'm working on, one of my main goals is to help uh, us as developers, engineers, to have conversations with the uh, business people that might not might not necessarily know how to code, right? Yeah. We'll just To a common language. So what we do with this code of metric, it's uh, it's. Fairly granular metric, but what we do for presentation purposes is that we classify every single piece of code as being either green, which is good, healthy code that we can easily understand, versus the red code, which we know is rich on accidental complexity. It's really, really, uh, it's a large risk to modify it. So that's where the red code concept comes
0: from. Cool. So, so how how do you measure that aspect? Is that is that using similar kind of traditional techniques to um, um static analysis or is that stuff that you've that, that that you've developed yourself as well as a as a model for what code how you know code health is
1: so it's something we've uh, developed ourselves but uh, we based we stand on some um gigantic shoulders because we try to base all the stuff we do on uh, and that's always been my approach to to base it as much as possible on existing research right because i kind of want to make sure that the things we recommend to people that it's likely that it actually works so what i did was i spent a lot of time kind of digging through research over the years and figuring out which type of code smells and coding issues really impact our ability to understand a piece of code because i think that's the main constraint uh yeah main constraint right that's our ability to understand code how long does it take us to build a mental model of piece of code mm-hmm. so i identified like 20 25 factors that uh make code hard to understand so what the code health metric does it it sticks these 25 probes into each piece of code pulls them out and say okay what did we find here and then our main contribution is that we have an algorithm that can kind of weight it together and do this classification into green and red code
0: right So could you just give us an example or two of the kinds of measures that you would use to to verify the health of the the curve?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, in general, we do this um, detection at three different levels, the module level, class level function level and then implementation level. And at the module level, you have classic things like uh, low cohesion, right? The module does too many things. You have stuffed too many business responsibilities into it. Yeah. And that's a problem because it's, of course, hard to understand the code because you need to understand all these different concepts. And it also kind of puts you at risk for things like unexpected feature interactions, which are sometimes most yeah. nasty bug can
0: have. So, so what sorts of techniques do you, you use to measure poor um, cohesion?
1: So we use a, a version of, um, there is this, uh, it's it's a pretty standardized metric. It's called outcome four, uh, which I think stands for a lack of cohesion metric. And four simply indicates that this is a really, really hard problem. So it's like the fourth iteration of it. Yeah. So we have an adapted version of that that we use. Cool. The, the, yeah. The way it works under the hood is simply that you try to identify um you know, given a set of functions inside a class, you try to identify various subgraphs. Like, okay, these functions seem to belong together; they're modeling the same concept. Perhaps they call mm-hmm. each other. Perhaps they use the same data. And then you really want everything to kind of solve the same problem and belong together.
0: Yeah. So, so yeah, that 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 when I started, when you mentioned that, when when my head started going down there, I, I was thinking of. Trying to identify the behavioral interaction with different bits of data. And I could imagine you'd be, you know, little localized parts of, of a nasty piece of code, you know, being all over the map with that kind of thing, but, but good code looking neat and tidy. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so, so you, you're doing these, you're doing these variety of different measures of the health of, of the health of the code. One of the things that you said kind of intrigued me because because one one of the ideas it, it, it's it's at a much simpler level in terms of code quality than what you're talking about. But one one of the things, one of the ideas that I've been pushing, if I'm honest, recently, uh, is the idea that I it seems to me that the most important measure of quality of our code is our ability to change it and not much else matters. And so the other parts of that, I think ideas like cohesion um, uh, matter because they maintain our ability to change the code easily. Do you think that's a reasonable kind of overview picture of what we should value as as, as quality in code, Or, or do you think there's more to it than that?
1: Uh, I mean, it's hard for me to disagree with that statement, because I think it's it's right that, um, you know, our ability to change a piece of code is a super important driver, right, for mm-hmm. code quality in general. Uh, I think there might be a bit more to it, uh, because um, there is this wonderful book by uh, Robert Glass called uh, Facts and Fallacies of Software Engineering, an old book, but still uh, one of my favorites. And he kind of has this uh, 60-60 rule that I've been referring to over the years where it says that uh, 60% of your work is making modifications to existing code and mm-hmm. 60% of that time in turn is spent trying to understand what the code does in the first place yeah so that kind of enforces your point that yeah change is the ability to change is important but I also think that the way you optimize for change is by making the code as easy to understand as possible because that's where we spend most of our time so To me, we want to optimize any aspect of code. We should optimize for ease of understanding. That's where the big win is.
0: Ah, yeah, yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't do disagree with that. I, I I would. I guess, I guess the the analysis that I make is that the reason why ease of understanding matters is because it makes it easy to change the code. It's not that. It's not that. I. (laughs) But, but, but ease of understanding is absolutely. One of the most important tools that we have at our disposal. Uh, I, I was just, I was just intrigued. I, I i suppose, in part, I was, I was looking to see if, you, if you, if you, if you reinforced my opinions or helped me to reinforce my opinions. But, 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 I, I just think it's an important idea because I think often we get hung up. I think the technicalities are important, but we need to understand why the technicalities matter. Why is it that? um Poorly cohesive code is worse than nicely cohesive code, um, and it's for these kinds of reasons. And 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 so it helps me to 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 understand and think about and prioritize the kinds of changes that I was making. So it's, uh, sorry, I'm just going off on one of my hobby horses now. But it's I think it's I think it's an important idea, and it's it's certainly one of the ones that I am trying to popularize at the moment. I suppose
1: yeah yeah i absolutely agree and um one of the barriers related to that that i've been trying to tackle over the past years with uh, the research we have been doing that has been to try to make code quality relevant at the business level because yes it. so it's something that's very much undervalued at the moment
0: and that that was one of the things that that I really loved about you. I don't know whether it's your current conference presentation, but the one that I saw at, at Yao at the end of last year, uh, it was one of the things that that I really liked about it because you're putting this in the real world. This isn't, you know, we we can talk about you know ideas like cyclomatic complexity and all those sorts of things, you know, on the technical front, but that's meaningless to somebody without a translator. And, and so putting this into the context of real value, the real value to organizations that practice software developer, development have been able to use software development capability in the commercial interests or whatever other interests of, of, of the company that's engaging in it. It's, it. it's so important. We're not, as professionals, we're not doing this for some ideal, purist ideal. I, ideology or whatever of nice code we're doing this for practical reasons because we get to make more software it more easily if we if we make our code high quality so i, I think it's a really deeply important problem yeah. so, so 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 your your stuff just brings that alive your the the the, the demonstrations that i've seen of that the product's called code scene as well as as well as your business i think isn't it
1: yeah that's correct that's the name of both the company and the tool
0: yeah so 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 that the code scene product you know it it does kind of bring it alive so that anybody you can show those pictures to anybody whatever their technical background and have a sensible conversation about them
1: yeah and I I think that's a super important conversation to have inside any organization right because uh, one of the challenges I've seen myself over the years is that I had so many people uh, telling me that no we cannot afford to do this right we don't have time to rethink the architecture don't have time to automate tests don't have time to refactor right so somehow there is this I would like to say it's a perceived uh, conception misconception that uh, there is some kind of trade off between speed and quality right we can either yeah. go very fast we can go well but to slow us down and the data we have been collecting and the research we have been doing and i think this is very we much support and in alignment with the the dora research right that yes there really is no such trade-off i mean the opposite is true right we see that the companies that manage to move with high quality they also can deliver in much shorter development cycles can ship much much more so there is yeah. no such trade off
0: yeah and 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 you know, I, I was I was delighted when 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 Dora first showed that, and and your work you know, reinforces that message too. Because subjectively, that that's always been my opinion is that the reason why quality matters in code is because it allows us to build more software, <laughs> it allows us to you know it allows us to go faster fundamentally. It's, you know, from a commercial point of view, once again. this ought to matter to every software development organization because that's it seems obvious it seems very obvious i suppose with the benefit of hindsight and it's really nice to have this more scientific backup backing of 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 studies like yours and and the, the, the dora the dora measures but it seems fairly obvious that if you build crap software this week, you're going to go slower next week because you're fixing all the problems that you introduced last week. It's just, it's just crazy. So, so it's certainly been my own, my, you know, my, my own subjective experience that the best teams that I've worked on not only built the best software, but also went a lot faster than other teams. That, that, that there just doesn't seem to be a distinction between those and I think that's just one of those myths that that surrounds our industry and we've kind of built up structures and project management disciplines and all kinds of things around that that mythology it's a problem
1: yeah I agree I think it's a very destructive myth and um I think part of the problem is that software is a very abstract thing right it lacks visibility yeah. And uh, I I think the consequence of that is that doing improvements to the internal quality of code, like larger refactoring, that kind of stuff, it it kind of lacks an external value, right? The software is doing the same thing, which is the purpose of refactoring, right? But there's nothing I can sell to a client. It's not doing more, right? It does have more capabilities. And that always means that improvements tend to get the backseat compared to adding the next big feature, right? So it's it's a hard sell, larger improvements
0: yeah and and, and people I, I i think i i, th- I think we we're, we're all kind of products of uh you know uh, uh, uh an industrial civilization you know, so, 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 you know, we grew up with people building cars on or widgets or whatever on production lines and so we have that kind of manufacturing meme planted deeply in our psyche but software development is not about manufacturing in the slightest aspect. It's a very, very, very different kind of thing, and manufacturing techniques don't work. Uh, so, so uh, you know, I, I I think it's interesting. Well, I, I well, let's get back on topic of the thing that we're talking about your stuff rather than me just I mean, me just philosophizing for a minute. But, but I I. I one of the things that you said early on about you, you, when you decided that you wanted to, to start off studying psychology was that you thought that might give you in, insight. I I, I I found that I- interesting. And one of the things that I, I, that, I don't know if I can, I can pull this out very easily, but, but th- th- there seems to be a link there with, with, with that idea and your very visual approach in terms of presenting the information in a consumable way. I've I've always had a very strong appeal to to strong visualization of of information and I I, I think deeply that's what your software does is it's got a very strong straightforward but strong visual impact when you see it um, being used can you describe that a little bit more, and maybe, you know, sort of just tell us a little bit about some of the things that you that you've been able to see that are unexpected from that kind, using that, those kinds of visualization techniques?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, um uh, coding and my work in general is where we have on visualizations, and that's because um, the human brain, in particular, the visual part of it, is really the most powerful pattern detector we have in the known universe, right? And it kind of still amazes me. I've been using these techniques for a decade now, but it still amazes me how quickly I can get insights into a code base. So just to give you an example, just yesterday, I uh, had a look at a new code base. It's like roughly 500,000 lines of code. So I would say a mid-sized code base. And I know that if I would try to approach this from just the code, it would probably take me months because I would, before I was even vaguely familiar with that system. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I do now is I put it through CodeSin. I look at visualization, so CodeSin visualizes it like a map, I can see the folder structure, I can see the various files visualized, and then we use color to kind of highlight uh, the things that I need to focus my attention on. So in less than a minute, uh, of course, I'm fairly used to reading these visualizations, right, but in less than a minute, I can immediately tell if this code base has uh, technical debt or not, if it's uh, a major concern. And I can also tell in what direction that's moving. Is the system getting better or worse over time? So, and that's really just for the start of it. That's the technical side of it. And there's a whole set of visualizations to uncover, like the what I call the social side of code. But that's a slightly different topic.
0: Mm -hmm. So, 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 you, you get this visualization, and then. What comes next? What? what's So, so that that's going to that's going to highlight areas that we can most profitably work on.
1: Yeah, it's it's going either to tell you that okay, yeah, everything is okay here. Just keep up the good, and that's actually a very rare outcome, right? But it happens every now and then. Some people are doing an excellent job on these aspects, but what it will do otherwise, it will tell you that. Um, yes you have some uh, severe code quality problems it will tell you exactly where they are it will tell you what they are and it will also tell you what you should do about it and the most important thing is that all of these issues are then uh, prioritized based on how you actually work with the code so like we talked about earlier in this conversation if you have a piece of code that lacks in quality but it's, it's a stable part of the code, then code is going to tell you about it because it's important to know about these potential long-term risks. If you have a plan to do something here, you should know about this, right? But it will also tell you that, okay, these are the parts of the code. You might have less severe problems here, objectively, but these parts have a higher interest because you work on those parts all the time. So it's going to give you like a prioritized list. That's basically a starting point
0: so 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 I, in one of your talks i think i i saw you talking about um this aspect as prioritizing technical debt and and using something called layman's law to uh to, to to manage this could you could you could you just dig into that a, li- a little bit more deeply and explain that to us
1: yeah sure so uh lehman's loss of soft revolution it's like um it's a super interesting paper, and uh, there are two laws there in particular that I tend to refer to, because they kind of capture the essence of software development to me. And uh, the first law is the law of uh, continuing change, uh, which claims that a software system will have to be changed and modified, otherwise it will become less attractive and less useful over time, right? And yeah I, th- I think we have all seen that, right? None of us has an empty backlog, so successful software will evolve. But that's in a stark contrast to the second law of revolution evolution, which, which is the law of increasing complexity. And this law says that when our system evolves, its complexity will increase unless we actively, very actively work to reduce it. Mm-hmm. And there is, of course, a conflict between these two laws, because if I am allow the complexity to just increase, it's going to be even harder to respond to change, right? So this is a really, really vicious circle that I see that a lot of companies end up in.
0: Yeah, uh, 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 and and you end up. Yeah, yeah. We we even have have words for these systems: big balls of mud, legacy systems, those sorts of things. We we end up in those in those unpleasant positions. So 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 the the the, the visualization of the hotspots gives us a, a route out by focusing our attention on the the technical debt that's more profitable for us to pay back is that a reasonable summary
1: that's a reasonable summary and uh what you then do is that you can actually I mean you can either use that to kind of focus your work and start to act upon that uh, or you can even uh you know using the data I talked about earlier you can even you know if you need to you can even build a business case for uh that yes. achievement right because th- there will be a, a business benefit if you take some red code make it green you can actually estimate how many fewer defects you're going to have, how much quicker you're going to be able to iterate on that part of the code. And that's something I personally find interesting.
0: So how do you you identify uh, the nature of the costs that you're incurring Uh, in order to make that kind of case? Presumably, you've got to be able to point to and say, this is costing you X because of, you know, this property of the code or this 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 bit of red code here how, how do how do you start to paint that picture
1: so we have like a we have like a statistical model that kind of came out of our research where we know that you know if you have red code on average it's going to take you twice as long to implement something in that code we also know that the risk it will take 10 times longer is pretty high right there's a huge uncertainty which makes it really hard to kind of guesstimate those part of the code and we also know that red code on average has 15 times more defects, right? So we can use that same model to kind of reason about it backwards. If I manage to take a piece of red code, I refactor it and make it green, then I would expect to be twice as quick for all the stuff I have planned in my roadmap that touches that area. I would be able to reduce the uncertainty my estimates, and I would definitely have fewer defects. And this is something that you can actually measure and visualize and see that it actually happens.
0: Cool. And is that model built on your um your analysis of code bases or and and organizations or is it Did you do other research beyond beyond that in order to build this model? So it's
1: based on uh it's basically based on the data that we collected via code scene because we, we have these metrics built into the tool, right? So we're kind of using right. it to collect the research data too. But what we did was that we um basically opened it up for uh, lots of organizations. So we had like, I can't remember how many, but we had like hundreds of different code bases, including that uh, baselining data. So uh, what we did was that we collected information about uh, the code health of every single module. We also collected data by hooking into tools like uh, Jira and Azure DevOps, Mm -hmm. right? We could kind of calculate, okay, what's your uh, development time? What's the time in development for each task? And since we had Jira, we also knew is this a new feature or is it a bug fix, right? Which made it possible to build this model for defect densities. So the data behind this statistical model comes from uh, real-world uh, proprietary software development from all mm-hmm. kinds of industries and programming languages. So it's like a very general model.
0: Cool. Uh, and so uh, and so so now you've got this, as you said, a, a predictive model that you can kind of use to to back up those conversations that you were talking about yeah another another I sorry I interrupted you go ahead
1: no I just want to say that this is uh something this line of research is like a little bit of a personal dream this is exactly the type of data I would have benefited from a lot 10 years ago back in my days as a consultant yes because I was so often at the losing end of these conversations right I was pushing for hey we really need to improve this right yeah. uh, it's a complete mess and I kind of always lost those arguments because I, I couldn't really prove anything right then I couldn't bring up my static code analysis data because you know the moment I mentioned something like cyclomatic complexity to a product manager they're never ever going to talk to me again right so it's
0: <laughs> I really wish I
1: had this back in the day
0: <laughs> yeah 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 one of one of the other ideas that I that 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 I heard you talk about was internal versus external quality could you just explain that a little bit to us and how that plays into into it
1: yeah so I think that uh, the distinction between internal quality and external quality. So external quality is pretty easy so that's like okay how many bucks do we ship in production basically right it's very much related to the product maturity experience and the internal quality that's more like It's more like the root cause of the external quality right so internal quality is something that's not directly visible to a customer but it could be things like uh, a low code health an unhealthy system that kind of stuff that is going to impact us as engineers working on that code
0: so so the the external qualities that you know as it sounds the stuff that users are going to notice it it falls over or they suffer from a bug and you know, lose some functional or some money or something like that and the internal quality is really the cause is that sometimes the cause of those failures but it might be more broad like it it just makes this code harder to work on
1: yeah but there, there is of course a connection between them because uh, yeah, yeah. you know if, if i have unhealthy code right I have low internal quality I'm going to ship a lot of bugs into production so not only am I going to get unhappy users the main problem is that all these bugs you know just like in the Stephen King movie they're going to come back and they're going to come back as unplanned work yeah and unplanned uh, work I love this phrase I know Gene Kim used it in uh, I think the Phoenix project right unplanned yeah. work is the silent killer of IT projects and it really really is because it's yeah. going can consume all your time it's going to be ad hoc lots of context switches and not you're going to have even less time to pay down tech debt or improve code yeah it's really really dangerous and
0: and 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 that's the reason why we go slower when we build lower quality systems yeah
1: yeah it's our you know it's a self-enforcing feedback loop basically
0: yeah yeah yeah. So, so so you you talk a lot about technical debt and some people Some people don't like the model. I, I'm 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 never quite sure that I understand the arguments against it. It seems such a useful concept to me on the whole. Um where do you stand? Is technical debt wholly a good model for approaching these kinds of um problems or Do we have to be cautious around it? Are 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 the ways in which we can accidentally misuse it and misinterpret what it means or misread the signals? Do you think?
1: So, I I personally find that it's still a useful metaphor, and um, I'm I'm using it quite a lot. Uh, What I think is that um, quite often we're misusing uh, technical debt to mean any bad code or any problem in general, right? That's not necessarily technical debt. So, I but what I like about technical debt is this interest component, and this is something that we might not be discussing enough because to me, that's like the central part of it, right? You can have technical debt, but it's basically a free loan because you never work on that part again, yeah. or you can have technical debt in a hotspot, which is the equivalent of, I would say, an SMS loan or something, right? It's a ridiculous interest rate on that,
0: yeah. So, I find it useful, and 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 so. Uh... Uh, what are the traps then? So the, the traps are not to think in terms of the. Inter- uh, so I, I think if it it always seems to me that if you if you do align the idea of technical debt with financial debt, that teaches you quite a lot. So sometimes financial debt's a good idea, and you know you can use it as a tool to do things that you couldn't otherwise afford to do. Um, other times it's a terrible idea when you're you know, paying off your gambling debts with your credit card or whatever else, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a bad situation to end, end up in. And I see analogues for, for for all of those kinds of things in the, in people talking about technical debt and using technical debt or suffering from technical debt in their, in their code bases. But the, but in the conversations, i've 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 had people say to me you know as a consultant you know don't don't talk to the product owners about technical debt they'll they'll just turn off um so so there's there's something that's not landing as with that as a model sometimes and i just just wondered whether you you thought about that or you had any advice on how best to present these kinds of ideas your visualizations help i think but I just wondered whether there are, you know, there were any other ideas around technical debt that might um, yeah. uh, pay uh, off. And and sometimes it's just the scale, because 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 like everything else in software, the, the the scale at which these things can happen. I think I might be quoting you back to yourself again. I've got I've got in my notes here something about staying on top of four thousand years of technical debt. You know, it's, it's really easy to imagine organizations that get into the equivalent of those sorts of situations if they don't act to manage their debt and control it, it seems.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, I kind of think that there are, uh, I mean, technical debt, I, I kind of, like I said, I like the metaphor, but I think that terminology might be a little bit tricky. So I think a couple of things happen. Uh, the first is that it contains the word technical which immediately signals that this is something we should care about engineers, right? Let's push this down to the engineering department. And I, I don't think that's good. I don't think it's good enough by any means because uh, technical debt is a, is a business problem, right? If you, if you have it, then you need to care about it. Yeah. My experience is, I, I'm fortunate, I get to meet a lot of C-level executives and most of them are aware of technical debt, right? So that awareness is there. They're aware of the consequences. However, the big problem is that we have somehow gotten comfortable uh to just accept that we might have technical debt we don't know at what level we don't know where it is we just live with it and i think yes. that's the the thing i would like to change because uh i think as a business ex- executive you should know exactly what level of technical debt you have you should know where you have it because it's going to constraint what you can do as a company with your product so i think that's a uh, part of the problem the other is that. Um, uh, we have, like I said, been misusing it, right? So, in the same sense that we're, as a community, might misuse a term like refactoring, right? To mean changing code in general, uh, which yeah. this isn't. It's a, quite a structured process. So, I think it's a little bit the same thing with technical debt. We, you know, maybe we implemented some crappy solution, now we call it technical debt and we want to fix it. And maybe this, maybe this isn't, right? But technical debt, like you said, to me, it's also a tool. I'm, I'm not religious about code quality by, by any uh, means, right? So I occasionally myself uh, write code that I'm not super proud of. And the reason I do this is because I have uh, the additional benefit of context, right? So I know that this is a code in the long tail, right? This is code that's very far from a hotspot, right? And maybe yeah. I need to fix a bug there, right? So I, I do that fix and I might squeeze it in. I might add to the complexity. I put in those X-Rave statements, right? Because it's a safe bet that I will never have to look at that
0: code again. So yeah. So Thank you. Let's 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 move on a little bit. So 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 we were talking earlier about the kind of measures of code health, and I was going to throw some words out at you, and see. And again, I'm quoting you back at you. That and uh, if you've got anything to, to to add to these, I'm particularly interested in. You talked about brain classes and brain methods, as as problematic in code what, what's a brain class and a brain method
1: so let's start with the brain class so uh, we spoke about low cohesion earlier low cohesion is a massive problem and that doesn't mean we cannot make it worse right so we can take a class with low cohesion we can make it really really large by adding many lines of code to it right and we can make sure it contains at least one brain method and a brain method is like a function level smell that uh, and we're probably all seen them, right? It's these methods that are really, really long. They're always long. They contain a lot of uh, complex logic, and they kind of tend to centralize the behavior uh, of the class, right? So each time you make a modification to s class, you end up in a brain method, and over time they just become more and more complicated. So that's a brain method, also known as a gut
0: function. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I can remember I can remember a very very long time ago. I, I think on my first First professional C plus project project, very long time ago. Somebody came up with the idea of a God class and saying this is this is brilliant because it can create any other class. And, oh, really? <laughs> That's, but 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 we thought it was we thought it was kind of a, a probably an okay idea then. Just I thought it was just badly named. But uh, but yeah, it's, these these things get these things get very messy very quickly. It seems to me. So so. I have had a pushback occasionally when talking about some of these design ideas and certain certainly my style of code is many small pieces. So 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 usually you can tell what the bit on the screen is doing without reading any further because it's concise and it it, it just a few lines and it's very simple. Um Mostly that's the case. Occasionally, I I, I might incur some debt like you for for some tactical reasons, but but usually that's what my code looks like. And, And one of the criticisms that I've had of that style of code is that it's got such a big surface area, but I was talking to Michael Feathers about this, and he said something that I liked, which was, that's just the surface area of the problem, that the code should be representing the problem so that you can see the problem in small pieces individually so that so the sometimes there are some people that will argue that these things like brain classes and brain methods are easier to understand i think they're they're crazy but so i've i've had that mentioned because they can see everything in one place whereas they've got to go and look in another file to see another class or another module or something like that but i think that seems to be one of those tools that we use to decompose the problem into pieces that are immediately consumable going back to what you said at the start or, or, or much earlier on which is we want our code to be almost instantly readable we, we'd like people to read it oh yeah i know what that's doing
1: yeah uh, i'm very much on your, your side here because i, I think that uh, if we consider something like a brain class or a brain method right that i like to think that those code smells they are really just symptoms and the root cause is a complete lack of modularity and a complete lack yeah. of encapsulation yeah. And uh, so I think that, you know, uh, and this is something where I also get the pushback every now and then when I suggest refactoring, uh, because I do workshops every now and then I kind of love to refactor code, right? So let's say you have this large method and I suggest that, you know, it's actually doing three different things. So let's kind of yeah. take each one one's responsibilities, break it into a method and put a name on it. And you know, on, at the surface, it's the same number of lines of code. We kind of just sliced it differently. But cognitively, yes. it's a massive difference because the moment you put the name on something, it turns it into a chunk, something that you can reason about, right? Something you can fit
0: yeah. in your head. So it's not the same code. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I, so, and I, I think it's one of those other, to me, key ideas that somehow... Some people seem nervous of in in coding when, when having these kinds of conversations. Is, is is abstraction? You know, when you're talking about, you know, the difference between your two examples is that they they were they were abstracted differently. You abstracted out the three different parts of the problem, uh, and and then you you name them, and you can more clearly see where those interactions are, and so on. And and that's another area that I often, not often, sometimes get 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 pushed back on is that you know ab, you know e, e, uh, abstraction is bad because all abstractions are leaky but that doesn't that's seems a very odd thing to say to me because it seems to me that software is almost it well oh almost everything is almost entirely about abstraction driving a car is about abstraction let alone that alone writing software you know so so it seems to me these kind of fundamentals are fundamental you get they're tools that we should be using to be able to 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 avoid some of these patterns that you're talking about
1: yeah and uh, i also think one reason is because um you know if we have some really really complex code and that code is hard to understand then we like to think that the solution has to be complicated too right yeah uh, I think there is so much value in these super basic refactorings like extract function. I use them all the time, and yes. what I find is that you know, the moment I extract a couple of functions and put some effort into naming them, it kind of tends to suggest the next refactoring step, right? Yes. think it's, it's like it's a reasoning tool basically.
0: Yes, yes, and and, and often I, I as I'm going through that process of refactoring code, I'll hit moments of insight now i know what's going on here and and that that might move that change the direction of what you're going but it's a way of learning about the code as well as you know reshaping it for the better it's one of the ways in which it's one of the ways in which i explore code bases that i don't know very well is by going in and starting to refactor them because that helps me to to understand them better
1: yeah Definitely. It's a powerful tool. And I kind of learned that, uh, you know, when I went into psychology to kind of understand why it's so hard to write code. uh, One of the first things that surprised me is that we're actually capable of writing any code at all, because it just shouldn't be possible, right? The human brain is actually way too limited. We have all these cognitive bottlenecks. And I think that good code is code that kind of managed to work around those bottlenecks, right? Rather than take them on.
0: Had uh, done, like for example, a brain method does, right? Yes. So, 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 I, I don't know whether this is an unfair question, but, but, could, could, could you, could you, could you point to what you think the secrets are of maintainable code? Oh. I suppose you must be able to because you're measuring it all of the time and and so you you're starting to see these common things so so what are what makes our code easier to work on more maintainable and you know have fewer fewer of these red hot spots what are the characteristics of that code in in simpler terms that people should be shooting for do you think i
1: think that writing good code is not so much about Doing the right thing. It's about avoiding a lot of stuff. And uh, one of the things you should definitely avoid is to have uh, lots of uh, conditionals Uh, Mm -hmm. because each one of these conditionals, they basically represent a state, right? That you need to keep in your head. And in our head, we can keep maybe three, four things and actively reason about them, right? So what I like to see instead is that, you know, take that part of the code, encapsulate it, put a good name on it, right? And uh, now we don't have to care about those implementation details and you can reason about the higher level concept instead. So then of course you have, uh, other trade-offs like th- that are super hard to come up with general rules for like, uh, the classic trade off is, of course, you might have a, a tightly coupled system. You can break that coupling by duplicating code, right? And mm-hmm. now you might have another problem. So there is always a trade-off and it's very, very rarely that we can say that, okay, uh, for this specific metric, it's always a problem to violate it uh, because it's easy to come up with counterexamples. So it's like that's why we have under the hood at like, least 25, 26 factors because code quality yeah. is so multifaceted that there's not a single metric that can capture all of it. We need to weight all these together. So it it was a vague answer, but uh, it, it is a tricky question to me
0: yeah but yeah but it, it, it's it, it, it reinforces a lot of my prejudices my my guess is that i would like your code if if we were working on it together from the way that you've described your code because it sounds like very close to the way that i think about code as well uh, what, what one more one more question we're kind of coming up to time i, I guess but, but but one more question does language make a difference it, in your analyses of these different code could you say that functional systems have less red code than OO systems or or C sharp is better than Java or whatever else it is do you see those sorts of patterns in the things that you look at because we we often all of us as technologists tend to get obsessed by these things
1: uh, it's a fun question I actually have um have some data on that uh I've never published it I'm going to do it someday but uh, basically what I let let me try to answer it that way that when I do a conference presentation and I want to illustrate certain code smells, right, uh, then I know what language to look at because I like to think that, I mean, you know, there are problems all across the language space, but uh, I think the communities value different things and that kind of tend to go in both directions also, you know, reinforce some code smells. So if I look for things like overly Apps over-engineered, over-abstracted code. right leaky abstractions. Then I Java is a safe bet. If I look for um overuse of mock libraries, right, where you have tests that basically test nothing but the mock library, then I go for C sharp. And if I want to find some really massive brain classes, then I know that C plus plus. That's my go to. C plus plus. Branding. I get that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so, I, I, there, I, there
0: are,
1: there are I, different languages have different problems. That said, I'm. Um, I think that in functional programming you have a massive advantage because you can write crappy code in functional programming too but it's going to be so much easier to refactor that code without any side effects and mutations right so you are in a better place
0: interesting cool It's it's been really interesting talking to you adam so, so thanks again for agreeing to do this today um let's 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 just let's just uh, uh Wrap up. Uh, so I, 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 so, uh, just to put words into your mouth, I'd summarize the, the way that you you kind of talked about this is that code complexity isn't really the problem. It's the complexity of the hotspots and the places where the code changes that really matters, and that's what this approach by combining the kind of the the, the metadata and the you know the qualitative, quantitative measures of quality in the code you get this insight this visualization of this would, would you think that's a reasonable summary
1: yeah it's a it's a very good summary i like that
0: good thank you um so uh, thank you very much indeed to everybody for watching thank you once again to adam for for sharing his expertise and his insights today um if you do um if you do remember to go and check out uh, equal experts links thanks to them once again for supporting us um and if you if you haven't come across us before remember to subscribe and if you enjoyed our conversation today hit like as well thanks again adam and bye-bye
1: thank you very much